What we're going to do before we partake of the Lord's Supper is we're going to begin a study of the book of 1 John. Um, Today's just going to be an overview lesson, and so I encourage you, though, to turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 John, um, because that's what we're going to be reading from, hopping around it um, in just a second. You know, Paul's letter to the Corinthians... Um, 1 Corinthians in particular, is really known for its discussion about love. And so when we talk about love in the New Testament, often we will talk about that epistle, that letter to that church. But actually, if you just do a a search, just a simple word search on the word love, the Apostle John, you'll find, wrote more about this concept than Paul actually did. Um, and if you look at the letter of 1 John, as you just scan it over it in your Bibles, you'll notice that it is not that long. It's only five chapters long. Um, but what you will see is that this book contains more about this word than any other book of the Bible, except for Psalms and John's Gospel. And what John's going to teach us in here is that Our love of other people is going to stem from, is going to flow out of the love that Jesus has for us as sinners. And that if we are spiritually secure in that, if we have a grasp and understanding of that love for us that Jesus had and still does have, obviously, to this day, then that's going to enable us to become secure and able to give that love to other people around us. And so more than anything else, this letter of 1 John is about the assurance that we can have of God's love and his son toward us so that we can then distribute that to the other relationships and the other humans that we know in our lives. So what we're going to do in this first lesson of this book is we're going to consider John. Who was John? Uh, What was his place in the New Testament time period that he lived in? And these, these letters and documents that we have from this time, what was his place? We're going to think about also, what was his personality like? Because that has a bearing on what he ends up writing about in this letter to these Christians. Um, so what is his place? What is his personality? And what was his purpose? What was he tasked by Jesus to do in his life? Um, and then we're going to look at the letter of 1 John and just hop around a little bit and look at four reasons why John said he wrote this letter. Um, and John is really helpful because unlike some of the letters where you kind of have to, to look at it and kind of infer some things about the purpose, John just comes out and flat out says, here's why I'm writing to you. So we're going to look at some of those places and then draw the ultimate conclusion at the end that's going to set the course for this whole study of this book, again, that Jesus is the only firm foundation that we have for the assurance that we experience in our spiritual lives. But first of all, again, who was this guy who wrote this letter of 1 John? So if you go to John 19, verse 26, I realize I asked you to turn to 1 John, but we're going to be looking at a few other passages before we get there. Um, John 19.26 is one that we're going to reference, so if you want to hop over there in his gospel, um, we'll be looking at that in just a second. But John is, is one of these really interesting characters, because Jesus had 12 special friends 
that he hand-selected and picked out from the seashore, from the tax booth, from the various places where he went, and said, I want you guys in particular to be my special messengers. John was one of those guys, but also John was one of the inner circle of the three. You had Peter and James and John, and they went with Jesus into places where other apostles and the crowd did not go. For example, in Mark chapter 5, when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead, John was one of the few people who was in that room and saw that happen. Um, If you go to uh, Mark chapter 9, John is on the mountain. When Jesus goes up and is transfigured, his clothing becomes radiant white. you got Moses and Elijah having discussions with him. It's crazy seeing John was one of the few who was there who actually saw that happen. In Mark 13, he gets into a more private conversation with Jesus than the others experienced. In the garden, Mark 14, Jesus is is a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John as he struggles in the garden right before he goes to the cross. So if we're talking about somebody who is equipped to be a spokesman, an eyewitness, John has credentials unlike just about anybody else in that New Testament time period to talk about Jesus. This guy knew what he was talking about when he wrote his gospel when he wrote these letters. In John 19, this is an especially uh, interesting passage because Jesus is on the cross. And this is what the scripture says. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. I don't think Jesus would have handed the care of his mother off to this person just because John happened to have been maybe the only apostle standing at the foot of the cross. Jesus had plenty of other moments to talk to his mother and to talk to somebody else about now this person is going to take care of you. This indicated that there's something special and unique about the relationship that he had with this person, John. And Christian tradition says that John took Mary uh, right before the Romans came to Jerusalem and destroyed it. He took Mary, he traveled through Turkey with her, and they ended up at Ephesus where he cared for her the rest of her life. So he did fulfill what Jesus wanted him to do. But he was, his place is very important in this. And also, you notice his personality. This guy is a passionate man who at the very beginning of the ministry that he went through with Jesus, what really craves a lot of status. Um, Luke chapter 9 is an interesting place to to think about this because Jesus with his apostles, they're, they're passing through the area of Samaria. They're on their way to Jerusalem because Jesus is on his way to die. It's the last part of his ministry. And they pass through a village that did not receive them very well. A Samaritan village. And so what happens is James and John, brothers, uh, closest friends of Jesus, they talk to him and they say, would you like us to call fire down from heaven on these people? Uh, Just like Elijah did in the Old Testament to the soldiers who went up on his little hill to try to arrest him. And I have no doubt that there is some prejudice and racial 
uh, things going on here as far as the motivation for what they wanted to do. But the point is they're passionate. They're eager to take action against something that they perceive as a threat. And so Jesus has to rebuke them in their anger for this completely unnecessary request. Um, something else you notice in Mark chapter 3 is we, we have a nickname given to James and John. See, if we just had Luke chapter 9, we couldn't very well just say that John's a hothead, but we also have Mark 3, where he is specifically called by Jesus as a son of thunder along with his brother. And then in Mark chapter 10, in 35 through 37, we, we see his ambitious spirit coming out, this man who craves status, because he comes along with his brother and his mom, and he has the audacity to ask Jesus, hey, can you allow me to sit at your right and your left hand, us two brothers with you in your kingdom, when you get to sit on your throne? And Jesus has to say, well, you guys actually have no idea what you're asking me for. You able to drink this cup? They say, oh yeah, we can drink that cup. No sweat at all. But you notice there's no, there's no subtlety. There's no beating around the bush. There's no hinting. Hey, Jesus, we'd, rather, we'd really like to be important with you. No, they just directly ask for what they want. So you see all of these things coming out of this person um, in all of these passages. Um, and so it's so interesting to me that, that John seems like a pretty self-absorbed individual. He seems like somebody who advocates for himself as often as he can, even though he came from a lowly background. He's a Galilean fisherman, just like Peter and some of these other guys. This man who wanted to destroy an entire village of Samaritans becomes the apostle that talked more about love than anybody else did in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and, and so interesting that when you do a search on the word love, his gospel, the gospel of John, talks more about this than any other gospel combined. Matthew, Mark, or Luke. That's amazing to me. You know, later on in 3 John... John is going to warn his friend Gaius about a man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes was a man who liked to put himself first. You ever thought about the fact that John used to be Diotrephes before Jesus got into his life and changed him such that he became somebody who advocated the cause of Jesus much more strongly than he advocated the cause of himself. You know what that tells us application-wise? It tells us we might have, we might come out of the womb with base-level personalities and genetic tendencies and, and attitudes that we more easily develop in our minds than maybe somebody else does, but that base-level personality, those mannerisms, those slants, that we just kind of naturally have, that does not have to define who we are. That does not have to be who we are. Now, what, what's so important is when, you, when the Word exposes us, we're reading these documents and we're seeing things that don't really line up with who we are in our lives, the temptation is to say, well, that's just me. Mm -hmm. Right? <laughs> 
you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, I, I'm a little bit too quick to draw conclusions, or my temper flares a little bit too much. But that's just who I am. That's that's just me. Well, maybe that is you or me, but that is not who we have to be. Because Jesus' whole point is when he gets into the house of our heart, he doesn't want to just cover one room with paint. He wants to completely renovate the house and to change it completely, not just give something over here a little quick paint job. That's what he did to John. And what's so interesting is he didn't squash his passion completely. What he did was he took it and he channeled it in the right direction toward him and his cause rather than himself. He wanted status. Okay, Jesus says, you want status in my kingdom? Then you're going to become the lowliest servant of all. That's what that means. So, that's his personality. Let's think about his purpose. You know, in Acts chapter 1, when you read about what Jesus said to his guys right before he left earth, this is after his resurrection, this is after he has spent so much time with them talking about who they need to be and the mission that they have. In Acts chapter 1, um, notice that Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What's so interesting is when you open up the Gospel of John, one of the very first things you're going to read is John says, the Word became human flesh and the life was manifest. His life was manifested to us. We've seen it. We bear witness to that. And when you read 1 John, you open up to chapter 1, that's basically the same thing that he says there as well. And so he became this witness. He became somebody who did not want to proclaim himself anymore. He proclaimed the Lord that had reached down and saved him and started to remake his life into something else. It's so interesting that when you read when you read John's Gospel, you never see him mentioning himself by name once. Isn't that amazing? And that's not because he wasn't part of the story. I mean, John is mentioned by name in all the other Gospels. He was there. He is able to serve as the side witness. But I think John is signaling to us that I don't really matter to myself anymore. Now my identity is completely wrapped up in my Lord. You know what he calls himself in John's Gospel? We've already actually read this in John 19. The disciple whom Jesus loved. It's about Jesus now. He loves me. And that's all you need to know about me. You don't even have to know my name. (laughs) Is what the message that is getting sent from that. Is that us? Is that us, application-wise? When we think about the words on our tongues, the conversations that we have, are we more quick to talk about our opinions about things? Are we quick to talk about our experiences that we've had in life, our perspectives, what we have to bring to the table, or are the words of Jesus, our Lord, and of the Scriptures, are those what are seeping out of our mouths on a constant basis? What people can tell is most 
relevant to us? Or are we thinking about ourselves? And does that reflect itself in our language? John saw his purpose completely in terms of this being an eyewitness for Jesus. Okay, so now let's turn to 1 John and let's look at some passages that John identifies in here about why he wrote this. Um, Go to chapter 1. This is the first scripture in which he'll say, this is is why this is here. (laughs) Chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know, it's interesting that we live in such a competitive world where there is everything is defined by who has won and who has lost. But like you see this in the business world, you know, uh, one company is going to get the contract, and one company and maybe a whole other bunch of companies are not going to get the contract, and they lost. Um, you see this in the sports world. That's what, kind of what makes sports fun. Is is you have you have somebody who rises above and beats the other teams, and especially if that's your team, then that makes that extra special. There's a winner and a loser in football and baseball and basketball and pretty much every other sport I can think of, um, and and that's also going to be true politics. You know, um, we we're talking about local politics, state, national government. There's, somebody's going to get elected, somebody's going to have more ballots than somebody else. That's just the nature of the, the way that that works. There's somebody has joy and somebody has sorrow, but what's unique about the Christian life is there are no winners and losers amongst us. Our joy is not at the expense of somebody else. Our whole purpose and mission reflecting the purpose and mission of our Lord, is, is that everybody's joy is going to be complete when we are living the way that we're supposed to live in a non-competitive kind of way. And that's something very different than what you're going to see in the world. We're trying to increase each other's enjoyment, not just of life in general, but of Jesus. There's a little bit of a, a question about this verse, because if you look in the manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts that we have, some of them say our joy, some of them say your joy, so we don't really know whose joy exactly is being talked about here, but the point is really clear. But John's just saying Christian joy is meant to be shared, it's meant to be given, it's meant to be taken from within you and put into somebody else because that's what Jesus did with his joy. That's the point of that. In John chapter 4, that John wrote in his gospel in verse 36, Jesus said, the sower and the reaper may rejoice together with each other. That's what he wants. So that's that's what we're going to look at in more detail next week when we get into chapter 1. But that's one reason why he says he wants to write this letter. A second reason is in chapter 2 in verse 1. Look at that verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, John's going to have plenty to say about this hope that we all have in our Christian lives. And, and he's going he's to say in this very verse that even if we do sin, 
and, and he's writing this so that we wouldn't do that, but even if we do, that's not the end of the road for us because we have a Lord who has paid the ultimate price in the sacrifice that he has offered for our sins. He went to the cross because our sins demanded the ultimate payment to be made for us. And not only do we have this once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus is continually, even today, as I speak, interceding with the Father on our behalf for the people of God. What an amazing blessing that is. And so are we, are we appreciating that? What Jesus has done so that we can not fear sin. You know, right now, the world is furiously trying as best as it can, in our country in particular, because it's worse here than anywhere else, we're trying to make sure a physical virus does not enter into our bodies, our physical frames, and attack us. But are we as concerned about the lethal ramifications of spiritual disease entering our souls and killing us. Here's, here's, I want to read you part of a Facebook status. I've got a friend named Gary Fisher. I think he may have come here at one point and did a meeting here. Um, he wrote something that I thought was excellent um, on Facebook. He said this, Imagine what it would be like if we feared sin as much as we fear the virus. And if we distanced ourselves, <laughs> social distance, imagine if we distanced ourselves from the things that lead us into sin as much as we do from potential carriers of the virus. I'm writing these things that you may not sin, he says. But if you do, we have Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 26. Here's the third reason. I want you to look at this place with me in your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You know, ever since the Garden of Eden, uh, you know, Satan has attempted to warp our perspective on God and who God is and how God feels about us and what God instructs us to do and tries to spin everything in a negative light. God's trying to withhold good from you. He's not trying to give you good things. And, and, you know, throughout time, Satan has gathered a whole lot of mouths to be his apostles and his messengers of this false message. And so in chapter 2, if you look at verse 18, what John says is, we've got this Antichrist who is coming. And actually... There have been a lot of antichrist, he says, that have already gone out into the world spreading false messages about Jesus. And in a couple of verses later, in verse 22, he defines the antichrist. The antichrist is not necessarily like some gigantic, terrible world figure. The antichrist is somebody who denies that Jesus is the one to fix the mess of sin and to save us in our lives. And so this, this lie has been told throughout time, uh, ever since Jesus came, and, 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 and notice today it's still active and alive in the world. When you think about how many religions there are, how many splinters of those religions there are, you have so many people just throwing up their hands and saying, 
we just can't discover truth anymore. There's just there's just there's too many too many buildings and too many books and too many people saying, well, I think we should do this. That that religion has basically become like dieting plans. You know, with, with diets, I mean, you you pick the one that works for you. <laughs> you know, well, I'm going to do Whole30. Well, I'm going to do Atkins. Well, good for you. That works for you. That's the way people are approaching spiritual life in some cases these days. But what, what John wants us to know very concretely here is that Jesus has accomplished the true salvation. And this is what we need to take confidence in and not listen to the people here in verse 26 um, who are trying to deceive and trying to fill our minds with things that are not true. And finally, chapter 5 in verse 13, the last passage that we'll look at um, today, you notice toward the end of the book, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So Jesus wants us to not live in doubt and to have firm confidence in, in where we stand with God. You know, with, with our relationships with people, we might not always understand where we stand exactly. Um, as people, our thoughts and opinions change. Um, we have good days and bad days, and so our emotions might be up and down. But when we think about our relationship with God, we know exactly where we stand. Because the cross tells us without a doubt, He loved us literally to death and gave up His life so that we can know and understand um, that He is working on our behalf to fix the problems in our lives by eliminating the power of sin and death that the devil wields. So our, our confidence doesn't rest on us on our ability to perfectly follow through. Notice how he says in chapter 5, verse 5, a little bit before this verse that we just read, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's where eternal life comes from, where it is. Uh, you recall that when Jesus was um, walking around doing his ministry, there was a young man who ran up to him with great eagerness and said, what must I do to access that eternal life that you preach about, Jesus? And you remember Jesus' response. He didn't say, I want you to go hike up into the Himalayas and, and pick a, a, a mountain flower. Or I want you to go over here and fight this vicious dragon. Or I want you to do any of the great deeds of valor that you might read about in, in mythologies. He said, I want you to sell your stuff, and I want you to follow me. Because I lead to eternal life, because I am eternal life. So if we're, if we're with Jesus, we are with this idea that we have uh, life and not death. And so what this all leads to, if you can, if you can trace a thread through all of these different reasons that, G, that, that John gives for why he writes this letter of 1 John, what do you get? Well, this is, I think, what you get. 
But we have confidence. We have assurance that Jesus is the true foundation of our confidence in eternal life. The very beginning of this letter mentions the word of life, Jesus, that was manifest to the apostles. The, the middle of this letter of 1 John explains kind of why we have this confidence in the word of life, in the power that he possesses to save us from sins. And then the end of this letter in chapter 5, in verse 20, John explicitly says, Jesus is it. He is what we are seeking. Um, and so this is, the, this is what we're going to rejoice in as we eat the supper uh, that we're about to eat. We partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread. We're not just remembering that there was a body and there was blood that was spilled for us um, on that cross. We're, we're remembering what that signifies. We're remembering the fact that because of that sacrifice given on our behalf, which is not something that we could do on our own two feet, Jesus is providing us a gift of enormous significance. Um, and, and this is not just something to remember now in this room or wherever you happen to be, those of you who are online. This is something to live every day. This is something to hold in our hearts constantly so that we will not live in fear or anger or any of the other things that the devil wants to put in our souls. We can live with the knowledge that we have life. Appreciate your attention. Let's partake of the supper right now.